You are now tuned in to the December 26er podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. What's up, 26er family? Welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and this episode features Anu Sun. Anu is a producer, songwriter, and engineer who's been a staple on New York City's live music scene for quite some time. Affectionately known within the industry as Anu the Giant, one might mistake him for a professional athlete. And while Anu is in fact a former football player, his creative talents were groomed in a family entrenched in music. Not only that, he's the godson of jazz legend Lionel Hampton. Anu's musical credits include work on the Grammy award-winning motion picture soundtrack Miles Ahead and Robert Glasper's Grammy-nominated Black Radio 2. He's also worked intimately with jazz and R&B staples like Bilal and Lettucey, and he's the co-founder of The Shed Open Jam, one of the most well-known jam sessions in New York City. And did I mention he recently released his own album? So clearly, Anu's musical resume is legit. But you might be shocked to learn that despite his accomplishments in the industry, he's purposely kept his day job, and I'll let him tell you why. So, please enjoy. Anu, welcome to the December 26th podcast. How are you? I'm blessed. How about yourself? I'm doing well. I mean, you came in glistening with the jacket and the sunglasses and the jewels. Hey. I see you. Hey, glasses are the window to the soul, and I ain't ready to give them all that yet. (laughs) what show you're on we just had this conversation before know, we, we started did. we you know? did i'll tell her what i want to tell her. okay got it. all right you know i've, I've been known to, to break a few people down now so uh, see i could i could still wipe the tears <laughs> and stuff from down here well, we're very happy to have you thank you for having me so let's, let's get into it let's go who is a new son a new son is a servant a father a curator and a creator mm-hmm. a creator in what way I just try and birth the voices that I hear in my head, mm-hmm. manifest them into the earth. Yeah. Is that my phone? Probably. Okay. <laughs> Damn, Siri, you got to relax. I wasn't even Siri hollering was, at you. Siri was all about it's, it. It's on, it's on silent. Siri, just, Siri does not abide she by. She don't care. Yeah, she doesn't care. <laughs> but um, it's just really, I, I just like really, I try and be a blessing to other people and have a role in helping everybody be their best selves. Mm-hmm. And help people learn from my experiences and my travels. And um, but I'm a I'm creative at heart, you know what I'm saying? I'm a nurturer, you know, and artist, you know. You're also out here uh known as Anu the Giant as well. Yeah, yeah, Anu the <laughs> Giant. Giant though. I'm a gentle giant, you know, the stature, you know. So it's mm-hmm. like I just figured I did a play on words from Andre the Giant and um, you know. It's a stature. I do, I wanted to challenge people to supersize it. You know what I'm saying? People need to upgrade that size in their life, not be scared of uh, messing with a giant sometimes. Mm-hmm. Okay, so tell me what creation looks like for you. Creation. How does that manifest in your life as a creator? Creation is a process. It just happens naturally if you're fluid and in tune with the voices in your inspirations that come through you, you know, it's about trying to figure out what it means that you're being inspired by or uh, convicted to do and finding a way to make that take shape into the physical realm, mm-hmm. you know. So it could be art, it could be fashion, it could be music, it could be anything, you know, it could be the spoken word, it could just it could be anything. So it's just like, you know, my thing happens to be creative, also visual. And style, because I like I like clothes and stuff. Mm-hmm. But it's just me trying to be 
like the the the, the talents and and the gifts that God presents me with in my mind, I just try and birth those mm-hmm. in um any way I can. And the and and the inspiration comes from like because you never get it exactly how you hear it or how it's presented, but it's just trying to do the most close representation of that. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? It's crazy. So did you always know that you wanted to be a creative and a curator? I was always kind of naturally that, um, that awkward kid, you know what I'm saying? That, um, cause doing my size, I played sports, I played football and stuff, but I've always, I've been a drummer since, um, since I was a little kid. My mm-hmm. uncle taught me how to play drums and my godfather was jazz legend Lionel Hampton, right? Uh-huh. So I, I grew up playing like while people listening to hip hop and stuff like that. I was practicing playing drums to like Buddy, Buddy Rich and Lionel Hampton and Dizzy Gillespie, Miles Davis records, you know what I mean? And then um, I was I, I was like heavy into rock and roll. So I listened to groups like Kiss, Iron Maiden, you know, all that type of stuff like that. So it was uninhibited. My, my through line, my influences weren't just so, it wasn't steered toward, I was free. Mm-hmm. You know, I was open. I was free to my influences. And um, so I just, I was always open and creative in that. And I was kind of, me being a Pisces, I'm a heady person. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm flighty. I'm in my head. And I had a lot of time. Like it was like, 12 years between my sisters, my siblings, and I. Mm. So I was the only child for 12 years. So I had a lot of, t- and my mom worked a lot. I was a latchkey kid. So I had a lot of time alone to be in my mental space and do what I did. You know what I mean? So it's just a result of that, you mm-hmm. know? So yeah, I was always a, a creative. And um, this is just a result. What I do now is a result of that. Just be honest to it, you know? And you're a Las Vegas native? Originally from Las Vegas. What is that like? Because, you know, those of us who are not from Las Vegas, we just know it, you know, it's like summer camp for adults. But I think sometimes we forget that there are people that actually grew up there. So what was, what was that like growing up in Las Vegas? It's, it's deep. I actually hope somebody one day does a movie about it because mm-hmm. there was a great migration to Vegas from families from the South mm-hmm. for work opportunities in the casinos and, and for silver mining and everything, you know. And um, we actually had a, a black hotel called the Moulin Rouge that was huge. It was really? the most place. There's the biggest place. It was bigger than all of the strip casinos because like, you know, at the time, like when they had the Rat Pack and Sammy Davis Jr. on the, uh, those early times, black people couldn't stay on the strip and they had to go into those hotels on the strip in the back doors but the place where they were really hanging it was really happening that was the Moulin Rouge because that was on the black side of town it was a casino and a hotel and that's where all the musicians would go play late night and hang but then you had people like Frank Sinatra and all the white musicians that knew that that's where the people in their band were so they would go over Mm -hmm. there and play so they let it be open for six months and they burned it down you know what I'm saying because it's like they didn't want the black people to have that it was like y'all bubbling a little bit too tough over mm-hmm. here. And people never talk about that story. So that's a story I think should be told. Absolutely. I mean, as as someone who I consider myself a student of history and a student of, of just music history as well, I had no idea. And then the funny thing about it is all the families that moved there, they didn't want us next to the strip. So they've made a black side of the town. Mm-hmm. They call it West Side, but it's actually the northern part of Las Vegas. Like, they had houses and minimal, with minimal accommodations, but there was no streets. There was no paved streets. There was no sidewalks. There was no street lights. There was none of that. So yeah. we we built all that up. We literally, our black people had a big role in building Las Vegas, mm-hmm. not just the entertainment, but the building of the city itself. So without the, reaping the benefit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, the culture is definitely rich there. It's there, and all the families are mostly from the south. Mm-hmm. So it's like we are not just black people there, but we have some. 
deep Southern roots there. Right. Like you would know families by their last name. So everybody's kind of closely like, oh, that's a Jones boy. That's a McDonald's, McDonald boy. You know what I mean? And everybody would know each other's whole families. So you grow up in this tight-knit community in Las Vegas. Your godfather is a, literally a legend. You're studying jazz drumming, rock drumming, all those things. Did you know that, that you wanted to be in the music business? I didn't think mm-hmm. about, well, I always had a passion to play drums. Wasn't necessarily about to be in the music business. And as I got older, you know, my dad was a, a professional bodyguard who worked for Wayne Newton, which is another <laughs> Wayne story. Wayne Newton. So I grew up around Wayne Newton. Like, that's really? my godfather, like another godfather. I mean, like, my dad worked with him his whole life. He was his road manager and his bodyguard. So Wayne Newton actually got me my first big set of, like, professional drums. Wow. But um, so, yeah, so being around that type showroom entertainment, I was always around entertainment. So I minimized. It wasn't that important to me. Mm-hmm. I was around. I had access. So my whole thing was just, I was just trying to live life. But I started playing sports. You know, I played football. And as that grew and progressed, you know, it was harder to to be a musician and do art. So I kind of fell off in doing that when I when I got to middle school till after college, you know, because it was like focused on being a student athlete. You know what I mean? So you went to ASU? I went to ASU. I went to Northern Arizona and I went to <laughs> Dixie College. I did. I, I was a journeyman when I went there. But yeah, that I ultimately ended up at ASU. Okay, so how'd that happen that you ended up at three different schools? Um, football. Mm-hmm. Football. And it's funny because I um I went to junior college first, played football, which led to a um a scholarship to play football at Northern Arizona. I left Northern Arizona early to go play CFL football because Vegas had mm. an expansion team for the CFL. Um, that team felt well ran into financial issues. And I started seeing how athletes were treated. Mind you, I left school without the degree at that time. Mm-hmm. And like I was seeing guys get cut and their career be over, but they're only getting a, that week's pay and a plane ticket home. And I was just like, I just need a better insurance policy. And um, I was on the practice squad there and they were doing something like they would sign and cut, they would cut me and sign me every week to make cap room on the team. So I was like, if they cut me this week, because this is like the beginning of the semester, I'm going to call my fraternity brother. We're going to get an apartment and I'm going to leave and go back to school and finish. Mm-hmm. And I didn't tell nobody. They did it. Cut. They cut me that week. I wrote, I left, put everything in this little, I had a little um, mini, tr- remember the mini trucks? Yeah. Yes, I had a mini truck. I can't even picture you in a mini truck, actually. Yeah, it was a sight to see because I had all my <laughs> possessions and I just, I drove from Vegas to ASU to Tempe, Arizona in the rain to do that. And then lo and behold, a team called me back that Sunday. It was like, okay, so you know the routine. You'll be back in practice on Monday, yada, yada, yada. And um, it was good. I was like, coach, I'm back at school. I'm enrolled. Wow. I'm not coming back. And I'm like, Forge, what, what the heck is wrong with you? And I said, you know, you know how this is. You're almost there. This And I was like, man, I'm back in school. But he, that coach, long story short, that coach ended up calling me back and telling me how much he respected my decision mm-hmm. to do that because it was the right thing and that their stuff wasn't lined up the way it was supposed to be lined up. So then that just led to me being the ASU, focusing on education. I became a father at that mm-hmm. time. Priorities become different. Right. And um, that whole journey led to me moving to New York and being a personal assistant to my godfather, Lionel Hampton, after wow. I finished school at ASU. So what did you major in at ASU? Social work. Social work. 
Yeah, I was always, because in my fraternity, shout out to the brothers A5, you know, in school, we always had a, a go to high school, go to college campaign mm-hmm. where we mentored young black males and helped them go to go to college and get out the hood. So we adopted a high school in South Phoenix and we would like go there, you know, do things on weekends, like take the kids to get their hair cut. We let, you know, rewards and them was stepping, but we would do like workshops with them. Mm-hmm. Like we do voter registration and all that type of stuff. And then that led to me working in group on, group homes and halfway houses, things like that while I was in college, which just piqued the interest. So sociology and social work was my thing in school. And then when I moved to New York, aside from working with my godfather, I started working in the city government here Mm -hmm. for the Department of Youth Community Development. So I've been with the Department of Youth Community Development here in New York 20 years. So those two things couldn't be like farther apart in terms of experience and worlds, working in the industry as a personal assistant and working for city government. How are you managing both? Well, when I first started trying to do both and, you know, when you get in the arts and you don't understand the industry, you think that, oh, I'm about to just be in the industry and this is about to be my bread and butter. (laughs) I'm good. I'm about to quit. And then somebody thankfully gave me great advice that I live live by to this day. It's like you do both till you can't do both. Mm -hmm. You know, your your career path to tell you when it's time to leave or when you can leave your day gig. And honestly, between the hours of 9 a.m. and 5 p.m., there's nothing happening in the music industry. Not creative. (laughs) So it's just really about you managing and disciplining yourself to be able to get your butt up in the morning (laughs) and get there and do that work. And then also reserving, being able to compartmentalize that and reserving yourself, that time for yourself to develop your your craft and what you're really into in those after hours, so to say. So I... Have a lot of friends who are musicians and producers and all that stuff, and I know the lifestyle. How are you able? I mean, you you alluded to it, but how are you able to literally get up and do a day job? Musicians, especially like real legit musicians, they're out, they're they're jamming till three, four o'clock in the right. morning. Like, how are you managing that? So you went to college, mm-hmm. right? You did finals week, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's just constant. It's legit. No bull. No BS. It's really just. Always finals week. It's like that sounds you, like my worst you, <laughs> you study all night. You you do whatever you need to do all night. And depending on how late you get home, you shower. You might need to put on whatever you wear in the next day and lay down for a couple hours and just find a way to brush your teeth and go get there. Just, you know, arrive and you get there. And then you got to you have to nap. You have to throw naps in mm-hmm. here and there. But it's just it's really it's really that it's like really just being able to to do it. It gets harder later. But the thing is, if you put in that time and um you know, that work early, hopefully the evolution and the maturation of it and, and, and your elevation of your position within the game, you would, you would naturally be allocated more time to be able to, to do that, like rest. And like Pharrell works, his, his studio, his recording schedule is really like a nine to five job. Like mm-hmm. he, he leaves the studio like 9 p.m., like to go home to his family, this and that. So it's just, it's really that. It's like it's really putting your nose in the dirt and grinding and it's knowing that just like it's paying your dues, mm-hmm. that type of thing, you know. So I I know that um in the sort of hip hop era, R and B era era, we get a lot of behind the scenes footage of like that rock star lifestyle, you know, for artists and producers and people who work in the industry with jazz. I've read some of the books, like you hear some of the stories, but we didn't we didn't really have an inside look into that. Is it as wild as you would think some other genres of music are, rock, rap, and the like? I mean. I've had the opportunity in playing bands and hip hop and bands with hip hop groups mm-hmm. who wanted to have a live band element. Mm-hmm. And I've been around some rock acts backstage before. And then I'm around 
people call it jazz, but I like jazz, I like Miles Davis's term. He called jazz social music, where mm-hmm. it's like basically it's the it's the art for the socially conscious people. And I just I prefer I prefer our backstage and our culture because mm-hmm. I've had some of the most brilliant, some of the most enlightening, some of the most best conversations I had backstage at those type of shows. And the conver- if the if there if the walls could talk in the blue note dressing rooms or like in some of the the other venues throughout the city or just in the bars while the jam sessions are or the shows are going on in New York City. So much information comes out of there. Mm-hmm. So I mean my boy Robert Glasper just finished up a month long residency at Blue Note in October and just the conversations that we're privy to in those rooms during that the course of that month, like just being able to talk to like a Dave Chappelle with the end Anthony Anderson and most deaf, but we're talking about socially mm-hmm. conscious issues, like things that's going on in society, talking about parenting, how it is to be a challenges of being fathers, all that type of stuff. The conversations that happen there are golden, you know, and then just advice on like directions in our careers. What like, where's the art going? Where's the market happening? You know, those conversations, it's, it's inspiring and it's encouraging. And it's just like, it's just like, it lets you know that basically you're not aging out of it because you're right on par with your peers and you're still in a community that's inspiring you to be better and to grow, Mm -hmm. you know? So I prefer that, uh, that, that dynamic. However, the other ones are fun and ours is fun too. A lot of (laughs) turning up happens there too, but it's just like, it's kind of different. You know what I mean? It's different, you know? So you were moving in this world as, you know, a personal assistant to your godfather, working in city government, but you were also a dad during this time. True. Did you feel that pull to be more present? Because I'm I'm sure those things were pretty all-consuming. Well, when I had my son, I was still as in school at ASU and I was trying to pursue a pro football career. And I learned at that point to prioritize, like, you know, I I was putting in time in school and training and going to little combine workouts and stuff like that. But I also knew that I had to provide a certain amount of money. Mm-hmm. I had to be there to babysit. I had to change diapers. I had to do all that stuff. So it taught me how to prioritize and it helped me. It was a blessing because it helped me change my life from mm-hmm. just being out there, you know, doing my thing to really like, you know, realizing what's important in life. So while his mother was in Phoenix and when I moved to New York, initially I came by myself, you know, I had to find my footing here. I still always made sure my child support was on point. You know what I'm saying? I started flying him here. We had split cut joint custody. So he had joint time here with me in New York. So, you know, I had the mindset that like that was that was first and foremost mm-hmm. over anything. And like if all this had to go, it would just go. And I find a way to work it out later. But my son was the first priority. So it wasn't no trying to you say balance, but it's just like, no, I determined what the priority was mm-hmm. and just worked off whatever time was available on the other side of that. Gotcha. You know? So how did your involvement in the industry evolve from personal assistant? Like what came after that? Well, you know, I'm working as a personal assistant, but mind you, the time I'm being a personal assistant, my godfather is 94, mm-hmm. 93. So he moving around being active, but he's not that super active we have but it's really more so a lot of quality time with us together Mm -hmm. him dropping a lot of jewels on me and then him knowing I was a drummer he started down drilling me like why what's what's up with the drums why are you not playing why you not shedding this and this and this I was like man 
honestly, after I got to middle school, the priority became football. And, you know, I kind of lost it. I didn't, I haven't played drums in like 10 years. So I don't have it no more. And he was like, you always have it. When you touch the anointment with that gift, it do, it gets rusty, but you have it. Mm-hmm. And then long story short over there, ended up, you know, he set the, he got me a, a, a set of drums. You know, I got a, a couple modules. I started recording my ideas and laying them down. Um, I started writing. I started going to open mics. So I started out doing just open, uh, poetry. Really? You know? Mm-hmm. And it's funny because the time that I made the commitment to myself to get out there, because it's, it's, it's intimidating to be in the Big Apple, to be in New York. Talent on every corner. And you haven't, yeah, but you're rusty. You haven't mm-hmm. done shit in like over easily 10, 15 years, but you want to put yourself out there to see if you're on par and what you're doing is what you're supposed to be doing. So you just, I was like, okay, I'm going to hop out there. And at the, that time you had to get the Village Voice newspaper to find out what open mics were going on, what jams, you know, where places you can go to get on stage at. So I was like, I'm going to do that this week. And I set the week in the venue, which was Brooklyn Moon, mm-hmm. that I was going to go to. And lo and behold, the day that I, was, uh, that I went, that I set for myself to go, 9-11 happened. Wow. You know? And I was just like, nah. But I still got, I still went that night. It was a somber crowd. You was, went I to still Brooklyn Noon on 9-11. Yeah. I still went that same night. It was just like, because it was just like, I believe that you got to, you have to show God as you committed mm-hmm. to doing you know, whatever it is you're going to do. Even in New York, when people move to New York from other places, I tell them like, look, it's going to be a grind. New York is going to try and it's going to make you prove your allegiance to what you're trying to do. And it's really just pushing through. So uncomfortable as it was, as somber as it was, I still took myself down there mm-hmm. and I still mustered up the courage to get on stage. And people were just actual, it was like it, the community was working through it. what happened. You know, it's just like really trying to just digest that but you also needed a little bit of escape from it you know right. so that type of thing so I still I did that and from that point it just I started doing more and more open mics I started meeting more and more other creative people we started working together which is how I met Rob the poetry started into being rap and music and um, we started working with other people over the years and you know like you put your head in the dirt grind and just try and get better and better and develop what you want to do and be honest with yourself and identify your shortcomings and what you need to improve on and you just look up some accolades come here and there but it's just like you it's really about just growing you know and developing what you have in you you know and that's how I ended up here really you know so you were developing your gifts from a poetry rap collaboration perspective so as poetry rap I became a head artist which was then I started being a head of the band mm-hmm. a hip hop band so I had to learn how to lead a band um, uh, I got tired of paying expensive studio um, money to record so I learned how to be an engineer you know what I'm saying mm-hmm. I learned then I had to learn like how to engineer how to record myself I had to re- learn how to do my vocals and like what, how to EQ and, and compress and do all that stuff for my vocals to make it sound right you know what I mean mm-hmm. so all that stuff and then in the meantime you know i believe like god i i know that like your people see stuff in you that sometimes you don't see in yourself and in the midst of me doing all that like when rob's his star was starting to shine rob glasper's star was starting to shine and he would ask me to do certain stuff that i hadn't even done before Mm -hmm. but i'm like i have a policy of embracing saying yes to the uncomfortable scenario so he'd be like yo i want you to to master i mean to mix this track or i want you to uh do the chopping on this record now he's on he's on blue note right so i'm like this is mad i ain't never done that but he's like but he i'm like he sees something in me to do it so I embrace it and just trying to put my best foot forward and grind and grow and acknowledge that and 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 trying not to you know 
try and make him right on his, his the, the look that he threw. You know what I mean? So over the years, I just got better and better and better at it because I constantly just wanted to be a better representation of myself. I do honest comparisons. I, I like my mixes, my songs, I put them against the best songs out there mm-hmm. and like identify the differences in it uh, rather than just being like, oh, my, my stuff better than that. Oh, I'm killing it. Like I'm really trying to find like, no, there's somewhere else in there that I can grow. I'm always trying to find that area that I can grow in. So it's just like, now it's just a balance. I'm a producer, I'm an artist, I'm a curator, and I'm an engineer. Right. So let's talk about that curator piece a bit, because I consider one of the things that you work on curating. What prompted you to start the Shed Open Jam? Man, honestly, it was a way for me. One, New York, good musicians are hard to hold on to. Absolutely. Because it's always... A artist that comes that does not really into that and they come to your show and they're like, okay, I'm gonna take that drum, I'm gonna take him and them. <laughs> and then all of a sudden this guy's been rocking with you for 10 years. Mm-hmm. He's going to play with the top pop artists and because that 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 retainer and that check is great. So I was like, you know, I have to be able to have five musicians at every instrument. And then I also got bored with the current state of music because it's on the radio. It just wasn't inspiring to me. I'm not going to judge it because everything has its place under the sun, but I just wasn't inspired by what's happening. So I was just like, I'm going to start a jam session to one. I could always find the young guns, the people who are coming up at every instrument so I could fatten up this Rolodex. I always have some music musicians to pull from and I could find the music, uh, the feature artists, the creative people who are making music that inspires me that's dope. You know what I mean? Because when I moved to New York, that's when, um, that was the golden age of music and neo soul here in New York. Mm-hmm. I moved here when D'Angelo, Erica Badu, Common, mm-hmm. they are all the Electro Lady filming, I mean, uh, recorded Mama's Gun, you know, Things Fall, uh, Phrenology, and uh, shoot, Erica was with Common at the time. Mm-hmm. She was doing Mama's Gun, and uh, The Roots was doing a jam session here at Wetlands, uh, Black Lily. So that community, that inspiration, and constantly being around that type of thing is a whole type of, that's a whole nother level of feeding. Like, musicians would sit outside of there and just wait for them to come in and out all day. Right. Get their CDs to them, or sit just sit on the wall and write. This one, the, the village was cracking back then, and I just saw that whole culture leave. Actually, it dissipated after after 9-11, mm-hmm. you know? So it was just like seeing that leave and seeing that void there, it put a void in me as far as my creative inspiration, but I also saw the effect it had on the artistic community. Mm-hmm. So I'm always trying to like, let me try and get back and show the people that's coming up what it could be, like how we could grow together. I want to have an artist community and stuff like that. So it's really about building a community of artists, a place where you can find the next emergent talent and the hottest musicians at every instrument, you know. So for the people, because those of us who live here know that the Shed is an institution, but for those in other places, what does the Shed look like today? Is it a weekly thing? Is it, you know, how does it work? Honestly, we're doing it once a month mm-hmm. right now. We used to be bi-weekly, whereas every week, every other week, but it's it's, it's once a month now. Just because just the, it seems like the demand for jam sessions, the, um, the strain that it is to pres- curate and present events and the support and 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 the average the just the effort you have to put into getting people to to buy into sure. things it's harder now you know and not to mention I, I have a lot of projects that I work on on myself so um so it's just like now it's just the current currently the best way for me to present it and the best way the best most effective model is for me to do it once a month right mm-hmm. now. So you do it once a month and musicians just come together and literally shed. Yeah, we just literally play, you know, advertise it on Instagram, put the word out that, you know, it's going down and 
the musicians who are frequent, uh, familiar with us, they invite their friends come out to come out. And then people who kind of hear about us word of mouth through our advertisers, they'll come sit in and contribute their magic. We call it making magic gumbo. So everybody just get up there, start playing and create stuff on the spot. So that's, that's, that's kind of what it is. Um, but, you know, we're definitely looking, we might be moving back to the biweekly model because um, there seems to be like a, a kind of demand for us in Brooklyn. We're in Harlem. So we do a biweekly in Harlem, but I'm thinking about coming to do that other week down here in Brooklyn. You know what I'm saying? So we can just touch the people in all their areas because these billionaires is pushing everybody out of Manhattan. Right. You know what I mean? So now you got to go on these little cuts, these little sweet spots and on these other boroughs where all of uh, our creative people, mm-hmm. our family members, our Martians are hanging out at. You know? Right. So you mentioned, um, I want to go back to the point you mentioned about these pop stars plucking musicians, right, and, and putting them on these major tours, major opportunities, which I think is great in terms of getting revenue, those musicians getting revenue. However, um, you see pop stars creating a sound that we've been doing forever. How do you feel about that when somebody who's, quote, more mainstream or just don't look like us gets the recognition for a musicality that has existed in our world as far back as we can remember? Well, it's, 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 color, it's the colonization of the art, but it's always happened. We've always been the tastemakers, you know what I mean? And it's, it's, it's tough to watch. And, you know, like I said, I try and like help people not make the mistakes that I made. And like when musicians I may know that seem like they get a little look or opportunity to do things, I try and be like, look, you know, take that, get that bread. But, you know, also keep this in mind, you know, and just see like you can't rob nobody of their journey. You know what I'm saying? The struggle, the beauty is in the struggle. And, you know, you're trying to tell people that and you're just trying to have them not make the mistakes you make. Some people take that different ways. Like, oh, you just hating on me. You don't want me to get this bag. I'm not going to get the bag. You, But you don't realize they're taking you for the sound. They want you to authenticate what they're doing to bring what's really something that we're stirring on underground and bring that into what they're doing to make them more authentic. Um and, and my boy, Rob said that he he had the best parallel compression, I mean, uh, comparison to this. He said, yo, the best jazz, the, the worst jazz musician is the best pop and R&B musician mm-hmm. that you will hear. Because the the student, the, 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 the learning, the being a student to the art and the, and the culture and the technicality and the approach and, and all that different stuff that goes into learning jazz, aside from just being a good musician, right. period, makes you better than what any of them do. Mm-hmm. And most of these bands, like most of these pop groups, they're playing the back tracks anyway. So when you do get that, they hire this great guitar player that never gets to play right. throughout the whole show. They hire this drummer who doesn't get to play groove. He just gets to play gospel fills mm-hmm. on top of the drum trap you know let alone they're not even singing live they're playing they're performing over the full track of their song so it's like you got a band for what just for the aesthetic right. you know what i'm saying you, know, you want to just fatten it up it's like what are we are we really creating or are we just really sort of a side so mm-hmm. you know i'm just i'm kind of over it i try and make myself be open to it because i don't want to be a music snob but it is like uh it's 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 kind of whack to me <laughs> right so doing the shit, you have all, you know, these other passions, keeping your government job as well. When did you come to the point where you're like, I'm an artist and I want to record as an artist and possibly be down with a label? I've been, I've been an artist. I've been an artist since like 2005. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, 
it's just the dynamics and the the level of that have progressed. Um, my first label release was actually last year with Rope and Dope, mm-hmm. but all my other projects were self-released. But it was me growing in public as an artist and a producer. Um, now I'm at that point where I'm I'm on point, you know, what I mean? I'm on par, and I I came out on a label. I do have like the 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 credits and things that would support and merit me standing amongst of my peers in a different type of way now. So it it, it is there, and um, so even aside from being a, a musician now, like the 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 projects I'm working on as a mixer and an engineer. They're big now. Mm-hmm. So it's just like it's only right that I I, I bring my personal stuff out uh, on a label as well because it's my voice to really do me completely. Because mm-hmm. when I'm working on other projects, it's me making somebody else's vision sound the best I can make it sound or trying to understand what they want me to bring to it and bring that to it. Or So you're working with training wheels and you're seeking approval on certain things. Whereas like when it's my project, I could jump all the way out the window. Mm-hmm pass or fail, success or, you know, fail or whatever. It's me really being able to release my stuff. And my most, my release, I just did on um, on Rope-A-Dope, Sanguini Regum, which means blooded kings in Latin. Um, I just, I seized that opportunity just to basically bring the message of the Black diaspora mm-hmm. to the people. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a piece. It's a art piece. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really just dealing with it. It's a point because I'm at a point where I don't have to just release music just to release music. I could do that on other people's stuff. I get mm-hmm. to release on other people's tracks and stuff like that. But I just took the opportunity to to to, to, to release a message. And know? how did that record deal come about? Um, through community. Mm-hmm. Uh, my bro, Maurice Brown, phenomenal. Uh, call Mo. His name is Mo, Met- Mo Better Brown. What's up, Mo? He, um, bad trumpet player. He plays, uh, he has his own deal, actually on Rope of Dope as well. But um, he played with Roy Hargrove. Like we just, we did a lot of shows in the city together. We were like, you know, the, the musician community here in New York, New York City, like doing jam sessions and stuff like that. And um, he's basically on that label. And he just did an introduction to me because I was trying to find out, I, I recorded my whole album before I tried to seek a deal uh, okay. or uh, my approach at where I was going to put it at. Because I didn't want anybody to tell me what to do or how to do it. Put the whole thing together, concept, artwork, rap, ready to go. It's all done. So it was just really me trying to find where I was going to put it. He did an introduction to the the owner of the label. Um, we talked. We negotiated. He liked the album. He liked the way I was, you know, what I was doing. And uh, Mo advocated for me. And that relationship opened another relationship that led to my album getting put out. So what is promotion for an album with, you know, we people know the big labels, right? The the Sonys of the world, the Warner Brothers, et cetera. But what does promotion look like for an album? You come to them and you're like, it's done. You know, let's figure out a deal for distribution, but it's done. What does promotion look like in that instance? It's so not what people think Mm -hmm. it is. You have to minimally turn an album in three months before you want to put the album Mm -hmm. out. And the further you are underground, the more independent you are, the further more you need to basically turn it in in advance. Like, you have to give like Spotify. Spotify doesn't want to. Re- they, you're not going to get on any playlist, which is the golden for people hearing your songs on Spotify and for you getting spins. And uh, you're not going to get any promotion on there by just releasing your album, giving it to them when it comes out. Mm-hmm. They want it three months in advance. Now, your record label, they need three months to get it to Spotify. Right. So now you're talking about if you're a really underground label, minimally, you talk about five months you need now to basically do a solid marketing plan, basically send those emails out, those 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 umbrella emails and then those certain people that bite on it that will do reviews or 
feature it on playlists or put it on their sites. So it's like that the timeline is is crazy. And artists who think they like I did I I went through three two albums of self-releasing. These artists who tell them these other artists that they're like I did it myself. Nobody is really cutting through doing it by themselves. You need the people who say they're independent are not independent. They got, you see, that they got a hustler with a lot of money who's going to pay somebody to do all the legwork for them. Or they got an independent record label who knows how to uh, pitch blogs, pitch different people, like the 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 the, the streaming sources mm-hmm. and all the different things like that to get it out. It's really, it, it takes a lot to get, marketing is really dynamic and it takes a lot of time, I'd say healthily, healthy uh, promotion is five months. For sure. You know what I mean? And just trying to cut through the noise, no pun intended. I mean, yeah. just in the day and age we, we live, the, the barriers to entry in terms of just getting your material out there on the internet or, or what have you is lower in that sense. Yeah. Right? So there's constantly, you know, people who are making waves on the internet. I, I remember pre, maybe like when MySpace was first heating up mm-hmm. and I was discovering underground artists there and like getting in early, like as an early fan and watch their, their um, trajectory. Now I'm like, I feel like every week I'm s- discovering someone who already has a million followers online yeah. or putting out stream, like putting up really serious stream numbers. I don't know who they are and just because it's so, what was that? <laughs> some of them are buying. Well, that, that too. Yeah. But, but you have those who are legit. legit, who are legit. But I'm like, how have you gotten to this level? And I don't even know who you are, but yeah. it's just the sheer volume yeah. of people who are quote underground, but have carved a lane for themselves. Yeah, finding those ways yeah. to touch the people. Mm-hmm. It's really, the magic is in really getting out there and playing live and, 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 and appealing to a community who identify with you. You know what I mean? It's like, to me, it's a crime that p- certain people in pop culture identify Kendrick Lamar with just the last two albums. Kendrick been dope. Right. Like, it's like, you know, it's it's 10 years to be an overnight success. You know, mm-hmm. every the people who are really cutting through have been in there. Like, if people who were like Sir, they think Sir just mm-hmm. came out. If you look how many albums Sir has on Spotify, like Sir has like like, like six albums. And they go, they like her, everybody, right. you know, Finally, my bro, uh, Thundercat's getting his praise, but Thundercat been dope. Thundercat been doing the same thing on the same wave for easily 15 years. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So it's really about when people latch on to it and being presented to an audience in an honest way. They have to be presented to where they feel like they're finding it. You can't present yes. it to them, you know? And it's like, how do you do that? You know, that's the hard thing. Like, how do you think, how do you put yourself in a space where people feel like they, they've they discovered you, you know? Mm-hmm. Whether you've been like, no, I'm really dope. You should really check me out. And I've done <laughs> right. this and this and that. And it sounds like this and this and that. But it's like, nah, nah. I, it's, it's, um, it's frustrating because I have people that I've sent my album to five months before my album came out mm-hmm. and I'll do a show, I'll do something. They'll be like, man, yo, when is that going to come out? You, <laughs> you didn't get that to, like DJs be like, mm-hmm. bro, you got to give me that so-and-so single. I How you going to share that? I'm like, dude, I gave that to you a year right. ago. I gave that to you before I even turned it to the <laughs> label. So you had it 10 months ago, but then, you know, you got to act like that's their, cause that's, that's their, that's their, that's their point of recollection. So mm-hmm. you got to honor it. You got to act like you never sent like, oh man, my bad. I'm going to send it to you. I got you, bro. What's your email? I'm going to send it to you tonight. You know what I'm saying? And just let, you know, accept the fact that that blessing that they finally on it, but it's rough. And I mean, I think that happens with fans too. Like early adopters as, as someone who I'm sure is an early adopter, right. And knows people's career path. Have you ever had that experience where you try to turn somebody on to someone and you're like, 
you got to hear this artist. They're amazing. And they're very early in their career and they kind of blow it off. Yeah. Then they come back to you with the artist, like yeah. once they make it you on the charts. And I'm like, I told you about that. Like yeah. Yeah. <laughs> several, 10 years ago, I told you about him. Exactly. And that happens with me a lot because mm -hmm. I'm really into like world music. So I listen to a lot of UK artists, a lot of people from abroad. And like when, like when Nicki Minaj got hot and people were like, I was like, okay, have you heard of uh, like Little Sims or have you heard of Layla LaShure or Miss Banks? Like, it seems like, uh, you know, she was spending a lot of time in London getting these flows there. <laughs> like, I know like five rappers in London is already doing that whole thing. And then all of a sudden they'd be like, oh, have you heard this track? This, like what, five years ago, I was trying to tell you, like, this is what they're doing. Like, you know, it's just a lot of dope music that happens abroad. There's mm -hmm. a lot of dope underground artists, but it's like, I'm not that person that, radio stations tell people what to like right. and they do it they fall for it like songs that are horrible they bombard you with it play it 30 times a day and it just gets in your mind right. and you're like oh it's me it's, it's, it really is though and then you mm -hmm. start programming yourself to believe that it's great but it's trash right it's trash right. but you you have had a hand in the careers of some artists um, that are reputable and se severely talented like one of my favorites Lettucey Oh, yeah. Um, how'd that come about? Actually, all those, like, all those uh, collaborations are a result of Rob. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and Rob being a side man playing with those people mm -hmm. at certain times and contributing to their art. Like, you're the best way to cut through as a musician or artist is trying to be a blessing to somebody else. Because mm -hmm. then, you know, it's easier somebody to, you call somebody that you've helped and, and they'll they'll be like, okay, well, he did this for me. Let me do this for him. Rather than you making cold calls, asking somebody to do something for you that they had no relationship with you right. and know nothing. So like, you know, Rob and I, we developed our in-house production crew of us doing things. And as he started doing black radio and doing his albums and him reaching out to those artists and you uh, exercising those relationships to do those things, projects just started coming out of it like after black radio one black radio two and then um we did a miles davis album oh collaboration album it was inspired by songs that miles did and we made original songs off of it um so black milk and i did a track for uh well, rob's rob's project that uh featured legacy which is a uh, i'm leaving you mm -hmm. and um i actually ended up being a co-producer on that but i had also worked with them before on the black radio projects you know what i mean so it's a it's a relationship that comes by part of my affiliation with Rob. Mm -hmm. But, you know, after working with those people over the years, I kind of formulate my own relationship with them as well. Like Bilal comes to my house to record. We work there a lot. Um, actually, most recently, Rob and I just finished working on, we scored the, um, I mixed the score. He did the, the music, but um, the Apollo documentary on HBO yeah. about mm -hmm. the Apollo theater. So it, I did uh, mix the score nice. of that. So it's just like those type of things, those it's all about relationships. Mm -hmm. That's why it's important for artists like to like, even if you're not nominated for a Grammy, even if you're not in the mix, go to L.A. for that whole week of Grammy week. Get in those parties, network and talk to people, because that's when the deals for the whole next year come out. It always comes out of conversations or somebody knowing somebody mm -hmm. or trying to find that person that can drive home an idea that they have. And that's the one thing that makes me a go-to person is that I always, I'm not a master of any particular thing, but I know how to connect the dots and I know how to drive things home. Mm -hmm. Like if somebody's in crunch time, they need to get something turned into somebody or a mix not quite right and they need to figure out how to do something, call me. If, if 
if I'm not the one for you, I'm going to tell you I'm not the one for it. But if I'm the, if I take on, it's going to be done. I'm going to deliver it on the time that it's supposed to be delivered, maybe early. And it's, it's just going to be on point. You know what I mean? So it's just really, that's just how the whole thing works, you know? Yeah, I, um, I was just looking at a few days ago, Jermaine Dupree's IG. And he was saying that um, just a couple of months ago, he had said that he wanted to work with the Clark sisters, with, you know, legendary 40-year mm-hmm. career in, in gospel music. And they just so happened to be at Tyler Perry's opening for his studio together. And he mentions this to them, exchange numbers with like one of the sisters. And uh, they ended up at Warner Brothers Studios, like recording with him um, a few days ago. Like j- literally just from one conversation that they just so happened to be in the same room. This producer with all these credits, one of the, you know, the best selling gospel group in history, now working together off a chance meeting. Yeah, it happens all the time. Mm-hmm. Like example of that with us is like um, we did the Miles Davis projects with Sony Legacy, the A&R for that. Um, the person who's over those estates, um, he actually was doing a, a, a Johnny Cash project mm-hmm. to where they were doing original songs for Johnny Cash, of a, a Johnny Cash poetry book. And they were trying to get some more hip people involved with that. Well, not more hip, but people who were urban artists. Mm-hmm. And uh, they tapped Rob and I to do it because he also was over the Miles Davis project. He was like, OK, well, let's see. So Steve brings... Johnny Cash's son, who's over Johnny Cash's whole estate. Uh, we all congregate in my home studio in my apartment in Harlem and create a song yeah. based off of that. And um, so then we get we get the song down, we get the whole thing, but we like we need a male vocalist. Now my homeboy from college at ASU, Eddie Blackman, who's a producer. I mean, a, a ma- he's a manager mm-hmm. and uh, like a CEO cat. He was with. Uh, Kanye's good music when it first started, but he happened to be managing Ro James. He lives here wow. in New York. So I'm like, yo, what do y'all think about Ro James? Now, I didn't know Ro personally, but I knew Eddie. So I reached out to Eddie, like, yo, what do you think Ro would do it? Next thing you know, we got Ro James coming to the spot. You know, we record this whole song and like us, those collaborations, those, 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 that six degrees of separation and all those instances ended up landing us to be the only urban artists on um, the um, Johnny Cash Forever Words album. Wow. You know, and like, it's a big album. We're talking about Elvis Costello, mm-hmm. uh, Chris Cornell from Soundgarden. It's the first, let me see the last song he recorded before he passed away. Like, and then you got us, <laughs> the cats, as you call it, you know, the hips, the hip dudes, the young guys. And it, it was just like that, those type of things happen all the time. It's all about who you know. So you got to be conscious in your interaction with people, how you treat people, because relationships is everything Absolutely. in this game. You Absolutely. know what I mean? So we look at somebody like Robert Glasper, who um, is an incredible musician, who has gone into the mainstream. And what I mean by that is there are a lot of people who I know who listen to the radio, um, but know who Robert Glasper is. He's almost like an exception to to the rule of like folks being underground. These really skilled, you know, musicians who have the technicality piece, can read music, all that stuff, classically trained. Um, but you always have these ones that kind of bubble through, up in a way yeah. and cut through. Do you think there'll ever be space for more than one at one time? Um, it's all about, I hate to say it, but the ability to cut the crossover, mm-hmm. how to appeal across that color line, that social norm line, that that appeal line to where it's like people who have your interest at heart, 
you know, it might be your politics, it might be your fashion or whatever, but whatever makes you connect to a broader audience that brings you in, you know. Rob cut through because Rob is a technician and he's a student of music and he wasn't afraid to like explore other boundaries mm-hmm. and he don't care about judgment. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Rob don't care nothing about it. So, but it's like, okay, you might just like jazz snobs might get at him about the way he's his approach to music now, but I bet you nobody want to play against him because he's still, <laughs> he could play all that stuff you play and then play other stuff over. It just makes it where it's like, okay, he's authentic. Authenticity is, 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 is basically is, is bond mm-hmm. is, is tried through fire is, 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 it's a sword. It's, you know what I mean? It's, it's a diamond. It's going through pressure. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. that, that, alone should stand the test of time but it's like it takes more people you know he was blessed to be in an opportunity where you know his 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 talent was acknowledged and 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 um broadcast by big entities because you need that you know it's it's even in sports like you the best football the hall of famer football players would tell you he was they weren't the best player on their team or they weren't the best person they experienced in their whole career it's a basically a combination of all those different elements but other people buying into what you're doing to help propel you to that next level mm-hmm. you know so shifting gear tell me about a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day extraordinary i don't know that happens all the time. No, really. <laughs> That's becoming a recurring theme on this show every day, right? <laughs> no, because it's like you gotta you gotta put yourself aside in so many different situations and just be a servant to whatever that scenario is. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, in art, especially with real musicians or real artists, it's like an unspoken code that you don't bring your 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 personal dilemmas, uh, afflictions, and conditions to the art, to the space. Like musicians will show up at a jam session and play all night till the wee hours in the morning, have drinks, smile, laugh. But you don't know, like that cat's crashing on somebody's house, they homeless. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Somebody in their family might have just died, but they don't want to tell nobody there because they don't want that to change the vibe of the night because that'd be reflected in people's playing. You know what I'm saying? So it happens all the time. It's like, shoot, man, it's... um, uh, I mean, I was recording my my one of my, my uh, songs for my album when my dad died before, right. and just being able to find a way to write through that, you know, and and record that, you know, and and even my last album, just working on talking about songs. I mean, making songs and writing lyrics about the diaspora, the stuff that our people went through, and you know, sh- crying while you saying the lyrics because you like you really when you speak words, when you think words, or you read words. You can still keep it in a little bit. But when you birth it and you say it out of your mouth and you're trying to present it with the conviction and the honesty and the compassion that it should be presented, it affects you a different way. Right. So it could come down on you. So it's just like it happens all the time. I, I, you know, it's just like I just find a way to show up, stand up and all different things. It happens so frequently that I just can't identify one specific thing. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But it's just really just trying to dig deep and stand up. But it happens. It's a constant thing. Depression is a frequent, like I battle depression mm-hmm. heavy. You know, a lot of my friends battle. You Like when you start talking, nobody, t- nobody talks about it initially. Right. But then all of a sudden you started sharing a little bit, just a little bit about what you're going through. You're like, oh man, I'm going through the same thing, you know, this and this. And like, we could, we could have been talking about this for years right. you know what I mean but it's like you know everybody the artist people we had the most conviction because we're the most in tune mm-hmm. you know and we I might, think yeah. sometimes the greatest art is born out of pain hands down mm-hmm. hands down yeah so how do you find peace 
in that, not only in that battle, but also highlighting social issues in your music. Because I don't know about you, but anytime you focus on um, that kind of thing, especially how it affects the diaspora, for me personally, I have to work not to see everything through that lens every day and walk in a place of bitterness or negativity. So how do you maintain peace despite the depression piece and doing the work to really highlight certain social issues? I mean, big part of it is that you have to look at it through an honest lens mm -hmm. because while all, a lot of that happened, um, our evolution of getting out of our situation involved other races and other cultures as well. So mm -hmm. there's, you know, the fact that, you know, those, those kids and some of those people who were doing that very thing to us, we got the kids. They're helping us now. You know what I mean? Mar uh, Dr. King had Jewish people, white people that were supporting his cause. Uh, Malcolm had people standing with him in his latter days. But the thing is, it, it it's just like is a detrimental situation and it still happens today. It's a systematic thing. And I realize that it's really based in fear. They're intimidated by us. You know, we 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 come from the original continent, the original sea. You know what I'm saying? It all bursts from there. And people might try and dodge that and, and have fear in the fact that they might be a little bit distant from that or that connectivity with that. But they can't ignore it. It, 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 it exists. It's still true. It's still us. And um, coming from a generation of, of a race of survivors, it's a job that we're tasked with to push through and fight through and bring it to the forefront. So you ain't got time to soak and be upset about it. You got to dig deep and be that warrior that our, our ancestors were where they still kept their sense of self when they were still toiling them cotton fields and doing everything and being enslaved, they still find a way to keep a part of themselves in it. So honor to them, you know what I mean? I got to find a way to dig deep and stand up and, and take it even to that next level, you know what I'm saying? That equality and struggle and pushing through and fighting because we're still not there, you know, and, and we can't, complacency, you see where we are. Yeah. We got comfortable you know, I think this, the drug epidemic and the laxatives, like a lot of it, it's reflected in the younger people today. Mm -hmm. uh, we had a period of complacency, you know, a period where we're like, OK, we got access. We here. It's all great. It's all good. You know, and look, mm -hmm. everything comes back. We, you know, the, the, the police murder rate increases, the opioid, opioid addiction. We, that's this, this lean, all that stuff. Those are not those not that wasn't traditionally stuff that people of color did. Mm -hmm. That's the stuff that we started doing when we started hanging out with other cultures and we thought we was in. We was hanging out in those other circles. You know, pill mixing and all that stuff. This is, this is, these, these are suburb drugs. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, and like we raise our kids not to go through the, the things that we went through and making have the struggles that we had. And sometimes to a certain degree, sometimes that's to a detriment in them because they don't have the crisis management skills yeah. that we have. You know, these certain things that really, like I've noticed in my son, certain things that shake my son. I'm like, son, this ain't that. I'm going to help you through this. Mm -hmm. But it's not nothing. Come on. When I punch him in the chest, like, come on. You know what I mean? But it's like, all right, I got, this is my fault. Because like, you don't, you know, we're going to get through this. But it's just, it's it's just that, man. It's just like, we're, we're, we are warriors. Yeah. We are originators. And we're regal. We're the original kings and queens. We ruled Germany, Russia. You know, we was here in America before slavery. They don't even talk about all that. You know, the Moors was everywhere. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's just acknowledging that, knowing that and celebrating that helps it be more easier to dig in the hole and go back and tear the scars off the sore to get the true story and, and revisit the pain, knowing that at the end of that and then the root of all that is a regal tradition. Mm -hmm. you know? Absolutely.
So you mentioned getting to the next level. What's the future look like for you in a perfect world? The future? Mm -hmm. Um, Staying connected with the arts, Mm -hmm. finding innovative ways to present art and culture to the people and and using my influence to advance um, the social and uh, economical conditions for our people. Awesome. So just because I don't, I don't think I've, I don't know if I've ever asked this question of anyone besides yourself, top three artists right now in rotation for you. Top three artists in rotation. Um, I like Sampa the Great. Mm -hmm. She's a female MC from the UK. She's crazy. Uh, Who else? I like Jay Dilla forever. Jay Dilla is the, that's the number one always because he changed the landscape of jazz music and hip hop. Mm -hmm. Um, and who was third? Uh, I got to throw Sade in there. Sade okay. is, I love Sade. Yeah. But I, it's just hard for me because I listen to so many right. different different things. Mm-hmm. Like I let my daughter, she gets to listen to pop music and kids bop and all that stuff during the day. But every night at homework time and bedtime, she's either going to go to bed listening to piano from Chopin or she's going to be listening to uh Parker Radio mm-hmm. on Spotify. So she had to be rail-wounded and cultured in, in that. You know what I mean? And have your kids picked up your interest in uh, music in a, in a serious way as a practitioner? Well, my daughter, more so than my son. My son, is he he's picked up my socially conscious mm-hmm. awareness and my spiritual part. He's definitely, he's a he's aspiring pastor and he's a lawyer. He just graduated wow. from okay. college. And uh, he's he's studying for the LSAT now. And um, he's also a, a, a youth pastor at his church. Mm-hmm. My daughter, she's she's like, she's going to give me my hands full. She's going to, she's uh, doing ballet and dance theater in Harlem. She's also singing and dancing and she wants to play piano. So yeah. she's, she's there. Like so she, my studio is her rest haven. Sometimes <laughs> I'll be sleeping. I wake up in the morning. She's not in the room, her in her bed, but she's in the studio just sitting there doing her own thing, but at the desk of the console in the studio because she wants to be, yeah, so she loves it. She likes piano because Rob is her her godfather. Mm-hmm. So, you know, she she knows how to, she the, those colors and those moods, that piano shape, she loves that. Yep, she might, you might have a, an artistic kid on your hands. Hey, I do, and I receive that. I receive <laughs> it, yeah. So where can people find you and your music online? Um, Pretty much everywhere, but I'm Anu the Giant mm-hmm. on Instagram and on Twitter. Anu Sun on Facebook. My website is just anuthegiant.com. Um, yeah. And I'm on Spotify, Apple Music, all that. They got me listed two different ways. Like as Anu Sun as two different words. That's Sun with a S-U-N, not S-O-N. And then they also have me Anu Sun with a dash in between with S-U-N. So, mm-hmm. but the most current music... Um, those things are listed on the Anu Sun is two different words. Awesome. Well, you have some impressive credits, both as a behind the scenes music industry person and as well as as an artist. So it was great. We don't get music folks on here often. You might be, I think, our second one. So it was good to have you on. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for the conversation. Right. To our listeners, it's just 26ers. Make sure you go check out Anu Sun's music and you dig deep enough. I'm pretty sure you'll find out what other projects he's on that he didn't mention. Yeah. Make sure to support as always like share and subscribe to this podcast and remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day take care thank you for listening to the december 26th podcast i am your host delicia this episode was produced by demarcus adisa and music was provided by thovo you can find us on twitter instagram and facebook at december 26er that's december 26er